0: This is a Humble Man Recording.
1: Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Skye and Hayden King.
0: we got two bars of battery.
1: Are we recording?
0: Yes. How are you doing this morning, Courtney?
1: I'm doing very well, Hayden. How are you?
0: I'm great. It's a beautiful, beautiful day on the Red Road. I feel like we're commuting less in rush hour, so the commute is much more pleasant.
1: It is, and it's much, um, yeah, it's much shorter. So our podcasts are getting shorter.
0: <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'll take it. I, I mean, when you had the nine to five gig, we would be commuting during rush hour. Some days it would take us two hours.
1: Yes. Oh,
0: two hours plus. Yes. Like Six Nations to Hamilton to Toronto. It was yeah. ridiculous. And now, you know, we're leaving at 10, 11 a.m., coming back at 6, 7, 8 p.m., yeah, no please. traffic. It's a breeze. I might as well be living at St. Clair and Lansdowne.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's great. It's a great community. So I'm also excited. I have convinced you to do a mukbang. <laughs> this is the Red Road mukbang.
0: <laughs> I still don't even know exactly what a mukbang
1: is. It is just two people enjoying food together, having pleasant conversation, and enjoying the food. Do you want to talk about the food that we're having right
0: now, Aiden? Sure. So, uh, I went turkey hunting, I guess, about a week and a half ago, mm-hmm. and um, was a successful hunt. And uh, I try to use every part of the bird. Mm-hmm. I think the only parts, you know, I don't use are uh, the skin, a little bit of feathers, and... Um, you know, even the bones. I make stock out of the bones. So, one of the problems with the uh, turkey—it's not a problem—but one of the challenges in preparing and cooking a turkey, especially the legs of the turkey, which a lot of hunters actually throw away because they're so difficult to prepare, is that they are full of tendons. And when I mean full of tendons, I mean you know a, tr- a typical chicken drumstick—you don't, you have a one tendon you have to deal with—but a turkey drumstick, we're talking about seven or eight tendons. So they're just all through the meat and it's difficult to, to cook them in any way. So what I decided to do this time was to to just carve as much of the meat off of the bone as I could and make jerky. I'm a big fan of dry meat. I'm a big fan of really, really dry meat. <laughs> so I don't use salt, I don't cure it. I just I just uh, thin strips, put it in the oven, 170 degrees crack the door a little bit, and just all day, um, or all night, you you uh, you, you dry that uh, turkey meat. And the result is what we have here in front of us, yeah. um, which is turkey jerky.
1: This is exciting. Uh, it's very good. Yeah? Oh, very good uh, turkey cooker.
0: I love making jerky. Mm-hmm. I love eating jerky. I haven't yet tried um, pemmican. Mm-hmm. It's more of a Cree thing, I guess. I
1: don't know.
0: I don't remember ever hearing about pemmican, but... I've got some caribou fat from um, an Inuk friend, and so I'm going to, uh, I think the tricky part is how do you turn the meat into powder? Because apparently you got to turn the meat into like really fine granules and mix it with the fat, and then get some blueberries or Saskatoon berries, whatever, and then mix mix them in there.
1: I don't have any recipes for that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, Pemmican anyway the turkey jerky i mean i i've got to be honest with you the turkey gives you so much i mean if you hunt deer you hunt goose like you take a lot of the lot of the bird but the turkey it's just man the wing of a turkey is out of this world just the flavor it's just like it's like a pre-salted pink nugget of just delicious wonder mm-hmm. i don't know if that was an apt description but anyway it's really really good yes and um yeah the, the jerky is pretty good yeah you know i like deer jerky because it has a distinctive taste it's really peppery there's a slight gaminess not a lot of gaminess but the turkey jerky it's just yeah it's pretty good mm-hmm. i mean this is this is your mukbang you're supposed to be talking about the oh yeah are we're you enjoying talking, it is, it, yeah. is, it, is oh, it sticking in your teeth it's is so it, good it
1: is sticking in my teeth come on. everything that you want from like a great uh dried meat is flavor and also just like uh good food i don't know we're like
0: <laughs> what did i call it the, a, a, a pink a nugget of pink delicious wonder
1: yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> that was so bad uh, i'm not good at this so, business.
1: <laughs> well it's also just like you know when people have um meals together there's kind of like the social protocol that go with goes with eating food right is that you don't talk about upsetting topics or anything kind of difficult true you're having like a pleasant conversation you're enjoying the food you're enjoying the company and that's kind of like what a mukbang is is recording that and sharing that experience of like sharing food with other people so that other people can like also take part in that Mm. so this is very interesting because you do a lot of hunting. You do a lot of gathering. Um, my family maintains like our agricultural practices of the Haudenosaunee. Um,
0: I don't do a lot of gathering. You don't? No, not really.
1: I like picking berries.
0: Yeah, I suppose berries, mm-hmm. fiddleheads, mm-hmm. leeks, if I can get my hands on them, chaga mushroom, barwivashdagan. We,
1: we have wild asparagus. Puff balls.
0: Yeah, puff balls, definitely. I mean, mm-hmm. I haven't harvested puff balls since I was a kid.
1: I made a really good cream of puffball soup last year. It's very good.
0: Yeah, well, next time I'm going to try some of that. Yeah. So I can't stop eating this jerky. Yeah,
1: we started, now we can't stop. Uh,
0: um,
1: so we've got you, another
0: topic to discuss, though. So.
1: We do. We do have a less pleasant topic to discuss. I don't know if it's less pleasant, but we were also planning on discussing um, some changes that are happening in uh, communities, in my community specifically, uh, of Six Nations of the Grand River.
0: my community, too.
1: And yours, as well. Where are you from, again?
0: (laughs) Center of the Universe. (laughs) Island of the Sun. Gymnasing. Beausoleil First Nation. Christian Island.
1: I thought uh, Wata was the Center of the Universe. Wata? Are Uh, you
0: kidding me? Usurpers. (laughs) Um... Yeah, so what Courtney is alluding to is citizenship codes.
1: Yay!
0: <laughs> we, we've talked a little bit about membership, I think, in one of our previous podcasts, mm-hmm. but we're in season two, so we're going to devote a whole episode to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you should start by, I can start by just setting the context a little bit.
1: Yeah, so, well...
0: I can set the context.
1: Yeah, let's start with a question. Uh, what is the difference between, like, status and membership?
0: Oh, okay. Well, status is the... If if you're a status Indian, then the federal government recognizes you as having sufficient blood quantum to receive uh, status, and status entitles you to the quote-unquote benefits that flow from the Indian Act. And somewhere along the line, between 1876 and 1951, the federal government started wrapping in its standardized notion of treaties to the Indian Act. So people got confused. I think on the Plains, this is more so, but people, you know, they think of their status card as a treaty card because it entitles them, you know, the status card will entitle them to their treaty rights. That's not actually the case. That's not supposed to be the case. The Indian Act is separate from treaties, but the federal government has sort of wrapped it all into one. And so, If you are a status Indian, if you have a specific amount of blood quantum, in the federal government's eyes that's a quarter, um, then you can apply for for status and receive status. Now there are a variety, a bizarre myriad of exceptions to this one quarter rule. you know, if you were an Indigenous woman and you married a non-Indigenous or non-Status man, sorry, First Nation woman who married a non-First Nation status man, you lost your status. If you were a non-Status First Nation woman or non-First Nation woman who married a status man, like my mother, you got status. Um, <clears throat> there are 6-1 status Indians, which are the gold standard. There are 6-2 status Indians who have less blood quantum and can pass on their status to their children Fewer generations, and then there's, you know, six one ABC, six two ABCDEF, um, and so the federal government has this twisted logic of uh, trying to de- trying to use blood to define Indigenous people, and then over time, of course, uh, that that uh, calculation, the hope is that 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 fewer and fewer Indians are are made via status, and so court case after court case has. Uh, compelled the federal government To change the Indian Act To take some of the discrimination out Because of course status rules discriminate against women And um, And they've they've, they've they've slowly responded And, and, and loosened the definition of, of who has status and who have, doesn't have status Which has led to the Desha decision And Bill S3 Which is what we're going to talk about Now, band membership mm-hmm. On the other hand uh can or cannot be tied to status in 1987 uh the indian act changed 1985 i guess but in 1987 communities were given the quote unquote right to, to determine their own membership rules so they could de-link status from membership because until 1987 you were only be a member of your community if you were a status indian but after 1987, communities could say, well, you know what, status isn't an appropriate qualification for membership in our community, so we're going to choose something else. We're going we're to, it might be genealogy, it might be community connection, it may still be blood quantum, um, but it's something else. And so instead of, if you're a band member, you may have status, but you may not, but you are entitled to certain community benefits. So you can live on the reserve, you can be buried on the reserve, uh, you can operate a business on a reserve. You can vote. You can participate in, in community governance. Um, you know, if you're from my community, you can access the ferry uh, at, at a member rate. Treaty um, annuities, treaty uh, PCDs, land claims—you can have access to those too. So. Increasingly, we see the delinking of membership from status. Now, a lot of communities are now being hit in the face. I don't know if that's an appropriate metaphor, but uh, with the De decision where, uh, well, many communities are now saying, holy shit, we better delink membership from status because we're about to get flooded with new uh member applications and as long as our membership is tied to status it'll be the federal government who determines who's a member of our community and who's not a member of our community
1: yeah and i think can we stop here and like yes, talk we can a, l- stop. a little bit about what's happening here so um the dationo decision is about Um, resolving some of these the legacy of the historic sex discrimination that's existed within the Indian Act and how status is determined so what it could potentially do is um, go back to people who have lost status or their status did not uh, didn't flow correctly from historic sex discrimination And people who were not status Indians before are going to be able to regain status. And there's this um, estimation that as many as 2 million people will become eligible for status that no longer had it before because they can prove um, that their descendancy is linked in the the same way that a lot of other people's status is linked. It's going to reclassify a lot of people who have status now, and it's going to change... um, essentially the population communities this is a specific concern for six nations so my community six nations is one of the most populous first nations in canada we have 26,000 band members right now about 13,000 that live on reserve and we could potentially see another 75,000 members added if uh, by INAC estimations of who had lost status and who could potentially regain it it puts a lot of stress on communities who rightly are skeptical that the funding that they receive from INAC is not going to accommodate the increase in uh, population they're going to be expected to serve at the community level, and so it's putting a lot of pressure on communities to adopt uh, more stringent uh, definitions of band membership to potentially offset this financial impact at the community level.
0: Mm -hmm. So... It's like 1985 all over again. Yeah. it's like 1985 all over again. Although I think the sort of male chiefs that are in power are less vocal about it. But back then, it was like women who were discriminated against in the Indian Act got their status back, and they went to communities and say, "Hey, uh, remember me? I'm you know I'm a member again. I have status again." And all those male chiefs were like, "Ah, uh, uh, you know, like uh, we don't got room for you. Get out." <laughs> uh, and sort of double, you know. You changed the Indian Act and the discrimination, but then when it got to the community level, it was like there was still a lot of resistance to that. And I think it—it's changed, you know. I mean, Indigenous women, First Nation women, are still struggling to try to, you know, end that discrimination. And there's there's still a lot of dissatisfaction with the D'Entrecasteaux Bill.
1: Yeah, the D'Entrecasteaux Bill does not uh, actually. So, <laughs> I had the opportunity to present to uh, the Standing Committee on. S3 and do a bit of advocacy there and so if you look at some of the First Nations women who have been championing um this issue what people like Sharon McIver or uh, you know some of the founders of NWAC what they will say is that uh 618 all the way if you are uh deemed to be an Indigenous person you should be able to pass that same status down to your children and um that it should be free from sex discrimination. And so a lot of uh, advocates have, you know, pushed for that. And it's been taken to the UN and found to be discriminatory. And so originally the Des decision was supposed to be, uh, and also uh, deal with cases of unstated paternity, which mm-hmm. is uh, Lingel's court uh, basically. So the Deschanel decision is trying to do that. It was originally called Ending Sex-Based Discrimination in the Indian Act. There are still a number of instances where sex-based discrimination persists even with the Deschanel changes. And so now they've just changed it to changes responding to the Deschanel decision. So there are still a number of issues that remain with how status is determined. There's no clear way on how um, to deal with uh, issues of adoption, issues of same-sex couples, um, you know, issues of people who, um, lost their status through, um, going to school, enfranchisement, people who are forcibly enfranchised by their families. This is something that, um, happened with a lot of communities where, uh, parents could, Uh, choose to enfranchise their children against their children's will to receive financial compensation. And Mm -hmm. so the people who are descendants from those, they're not going to see, potentially not see their status restored uh, through these changes either.
0: And of course there's just the glaring issue that I think most critics point out that... um the federal government's the one who's ultimately Still determining who gets status and who doesn't Get status, though I think, and this sort of Relates back to my earlier point about Resistance at the community level You know, I, I remember watching some of the Standing committee testimony and One of the one of, Well, it was uh, Chief Joe Norton From Ganawage, Ganawage or Gonzatage? Ganawage, Ganawage. He goes and says, you know, this is this is going to cause too much, too many issues for us. We, can, you know, we've got to have more narrow understandings of, of status, so that we don't have these these flood of people who are disconnected from our communities into our communities where we do have uh, uh, challenges already. And of course, Ganoague is, you know, probably the the best example of communities, or at least the high most high profile example of. A community that's very active on on membership, and uh, that has resulted in in people getting kicked out of the community, uh, the so-called evictions. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have heard, or my understanding rather, is that the two million is the high. The very the upper limit. I mean, if you if you if we increase the status population by two million, that would almost be doubling the status Indian yeah. population in the country. So the the number that I think is probably more uh, realistic, at least according to I believe the Parliamentary Budget Officer, is six hundred thousand. But even still, six hundred thousand new status Indians coming into communities that is a lot that's going to put a lot of pressure on communities not to say that discrimination shouldn't be eliminated from the Indian Act it's just a challenge that communities are now grappling with and so we are seeing and I think First Nations are sort of late to this understanding um, but communities are now seeing if we don't get our membership sorted out right now we are going to have in some cases double our population when we wake up
1: And I think one of the things, too, that is... I think the point people miss a lot, too, when they talk about these huge estimations of potentially new status Indians, it's a demonstration of the scope of the discrimination and how many people have truly been left out of calculations for different type of funding avenues, different types of treaty payments. You know, those people who have been discriminated against, you know, the... This is instances, you know, in the Daishinaw De decision, there was, like, one the specific example of, like, the cousins rule, right? Where even with uh, C-31 uh, amendments to the Indian Act, you still had this legacy of people who were deemed, like, a, a lower class or lowest lower status of um, being Indigenous, even though they were first cousins, had the exact same Indigenous versus non-Indigenous parentage. Um, but they, because of these, you know, the inability to fix... Um, the issues through previous amendments, they were had different um, status classifications uh, for them. Like if you had a, if you were born to, the, if you had the same grandparents, and you both of your parents at different times married non-indigenous people pre eighty five, post eighty five, the remedies that were ascribed to you were different. Mm
0: hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, it's it's really. Um, uh, it's I mean, a it's a mess that's been created by INAC and their definition of communities and the inability of our communities to actually say who it, who lives here who's a part of us and who isn't and it creates a lot of issues in our community right it, it um, definitely
0: it definitely does who belongs who doesn't yeah. belong and uh, what I mean we could spend be? this entire commute every commute this week just mm-hmm. talking about how absurd and bizarre Canada's status rules are and the consequences of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have this situation, and and well, we do have this situation now where communities are saying, okay, let's get our membership business in order. And, you know, that was a very long context. That was a very long <laughs> lead up to what, we, what, I guess we were going to have a conversation. We're running on a road here. But we were going to have a conversation about Six Nations' uh, proposed citizenship code. Uh, which is a response to this context. In my own community, I, I chaired the governance committee for many years. In my community, and we tried to tackle membership, uh, the membership code, and ultimately we we failed. Um, and so now we're, you know, when, when the when uh, when when uh, these changes are made. Uh, we won't be prepared. But your community, Six Nations, is 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 gearing up and they got a citizenship code to address these issues. And what does that citizenship code say? Because people are not exactly pleased.
1: Yeah, people are not pleased because it, it does continue to uphold and use definitions of blood quantum to determine membership, right? And I think that there's definitely at least the academic or like online argument that people don't necessarily want to see blood quantum used to determine membership or rights entitlement, right? Like, I think that that, um, and it continues to, um, use the methods and calculations of the colonizer to determine our own, you know, we put a, a brown face on it when we do that kind of, uh, work on their behalf, right? If we continue to use the same types of methods and and determining amongst ourselves right as opposed to what historically how Haudenosaunee would have determined their um who our members of our community are right so traditionally it would have been you know if your mother is Haudenosaunee then you're Haudenosaunee and there's no halves you can't be half in our communities and and blood quantum played not a significant role in it it was more about you know who's your clan mother and there are instances where people born to men could be adopted into the community and so adoption was very um very common in our practices and we also had a lot of non-indigenous people that would come and join and live within our our governance system right as long as they're willing to uphold the laws of our communities and they would be welcomed if you look at some of the census data you know in the 1800s of six nations you would see uh you know germans irish black people living in our communities um noted by the census taker to say like you know there's uh, other people that are living in this community as well so there's uh going to be a referendum and a vote on changing the membership code in Six Nations, May twenty fifth, so if you listen this podcast and you're a uh, member of Six Nations, you're able to vote on it and see the information online and whether it's something you want to be. Because they've been doing a lot of like information sessions in the community and things like that. But I think you know there are some people that are unhappy with it.
0: Yeah, I can understand. But in- there are
1: but there are a lot of people who are happy with it. There are a lot right, of people in our community right. that do believe that blood quantum matters.
0: When we were doing the consultation for our membership code, the elders... Well, not all the elders, but some of the elders were like, yeah, blood, blood fucking matters. Yeah. So we want we, don't want... we don't want people with no blood quantum coming around our community. I mean, we're already an island, and people are, you know, give anybody that they don't know, you know... The boat pulls up, and you get off the boat, and the whole community can see who gets off the boat, and you're like, who's that guy? You yeah. know, who's, who's that? And uh, I think, you know, that sort of amplifies the concern about who belongs and who doesn't belong, but... Yeah, the blood definitely matters. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the the Six Nations citizenship code is pretty steep, though. I mean, fifty percent. Mm-hmm. You gotta have fifty percent, not just Indian blood quantum, but fifty percent Haudenosaunee Six Nation blood mm-hmm. to apply to be a member of Six Nations. Mm-hmm apply to be a probationary member of Six Nations, and if you can prove that you're a good citizen and don't violate the laws of the community, then you can become a full citizen of, of the community. 50% is kind of a lot. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm, I don't know if you read a lot of J.R. Miller, but it was one of... He, I read a lot of J.R. Miller when I was, like, 19, and for whatever reason, it's stuck in my brain ever since then. But I remember this passage where he's talking about... Um, Adoption and how settlers didn't understand indigenous adoption because he said something like by the late seventeen hundred seventy five of the mohawks uh it, it, in uh in uh the great Lakes region weren't mohawk by blood because mm-hmm. adoption was such a common thing well, mm-hmm. that might be high, but mm-hmm. you know morning wars uh adoption was prolific it was a prolific practice among the Haudenosaunee less so among the Anishinaabek but we definitely practiced adoption Mm -hmm. we have a whole clan set aside for adoptees Mm -hmm. um so this doesn't does this I I mean this is a question but does this you know 50% Haudenosaunee six nation or 50% first nation blood that's required for you to Mm -hmm. be a citizen does that jive with our traditional forms of membership and belonging? And do those traditional forms even matter in a contemporary mm-hmm. Canada where we do have millions of pretendians? Mm-hmm. Millions may be overstating, but it feels like millions.
1: A significant amount of pretendians in strategic places, for sure. I think, yeah, I think that there's some things... One of the things that really interested some of my friends who live in other Hiddleston the was the idea that it made it easier for them to potentially transfer between six nations because that's another huge issue that happens with you know with how band membership is determined right is that if you are even though culturally you might be very similar to you know other hidden training communities i'm mohawk i would love to live in other mohawk territories Mm -hmm. um you know it's it's not possible to do that and i see and it's happened very recently in six nations where a status indian who's a member of Akwesasne, who's lived at Six Nations for 19 years, was kicked out of the community. Her kids are, you know, her kids are band members here, her husband's a band member here, there's never been an issue, but, you know, we start to become, we're just our, our of our enforcement, these rules, and we ignore the fact that there was someone in our community who was contributing, working, parenting, raising really good kids in our community, and they're being stigmatized and ostracized because of that, right? like. It really flies in the face of the idea that we get to construct and determine our own lives in our own communities, right? And so I think that is uh, very frustrating. It is uh, hard to grapple with. And mm-hmm. I don't think our community unfortunately has to be in this almost reactionary place where we have to respond and decide on a, a piece of consultation because not a lot of people come out to like the drafting portions of these kinds of yeah. things right i'm sure
0: the. i mean the federal government's yeah. going to move forward so we better have something in mm-hmm. place yeah. but what we have in place i think you know what uh, both in my community and i think probably in your community it doesn't sound like it's the appropriate uh tool and I, I remember um, asking an elder in my community one time like what, what does it take to be a member of of our community or traditionally how did you become a member of our community and she basically just said if you worked hard, if yeah. you worked hard to support the community, you provide for your family, um, that was it you were a member of the yeah. community and if you didn't work hard then it was questionable that you were a member of the, of the community and of course there's likely all kinds of exceptions to that for a variety of reasons but Um, that was basically it. And if you think about it and you think about our ancestors, that makes the most sense. Like, um, having this very community focused view and, and, um, especially trying to keep these communities alive and we're sort of in the same situation today, you know, on the line, on the edge, um, my community, I think many others, um, and especially if you're, um. maybe a northern community suffers from a lot of people leaving mm-hmm. and not coming back like the educated people leave the um the the people with certain qualifications that the that the community needs leaves um and if we keep pushing those people out by getting more and more restrictive then we're not really producing that hard-working i don't want to sound conservative here but um that sort of community ethic, like it seems to me, it seems to me counterproductive to have this a very narrow approach, which excludes and marginalizes who are potentially good, positive, contributing members of our communities and societies. I mean, how I, I don't understand how a lot of communities don't don't recognize that. Is and is it just the th- the threat, the fear of all of these? Phonies, these disconnected Indians, you know, coming in and taking up the resources? Is that fear overpowering the pragmatism that we need?
1: Yeah, and I have no idea. Because if you think about that too, right, this kind of, like, fear-mongering over this, like, influx of people was kind of the same thing that happened around C31, right? And what really happened was, like, a a recalculation of people's that were already in communities' um, status, right? Like, I think about some people that I know in community that were like, yeah, my kids were going to be non-status because of my whatever standing and now they're not going to be. And I think that's the the question, right? It's like, if you have people that have married into the community, they live in the territory, they've always been there and they're potentially going to not be able to, um, raise their kids in the community or pass down, uh, anything to their children within the community and those kids are raised in your community you know they potentially know the language they're adopted culturally mm-hmm. you know what you know that's where we're that's where blood quantum gets us right it gets us to the place where people actually are culturally in in their mind in their hearts in their spirits put in a and we somehow see them as being less than regardless of their contributions to our society and i think that's what frustrating for me when I have a hard time like wrapping my head around. And then at the same time if you look at the experiences of urban indigenous communities, you know, some I've seen some uh, custom codes or custom bad codes where you have to go back to the territory. You have to actually maintain yes. a yes. physical presence in the community. And if you you know, get a job and you're working across the country or you know, I have some friends who are rol- enrolled in, you know, in the far north and they it costs them thousands of dollars to go home.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: it can it's
0: but that is it, important. Live, it is you, kind of important. Though. But if
1: you live in poverty or if you're just True. trying to make survive, True. if you True. cannot if you're working a minimum wage job or you're trying to go to school in Toronto and you can't if you don't have an accumulator excess of wealth and you can't get home does that mean you're not indigenous anymore well maybe in a membership membership?
0: maybe membership should support community members if they're community members to get home
1: well and maybe that we need to rethink how we define indigeneity and nationhood and urban spaces are also ways in which it's constructed and we think about governance and membership in a different way right like there are a lot of people that have left and might never come home there are a lot of people that are making meaningful contributions in other territories like why like are they going to be adopted to other places you know mm-hmm, if you think about mm-hmm. the 70,000 First Nations people that live in Toronto or whatever the number is you know what does it mean to be a active and meaningful contributor to here spend your time all your time and all your we're actually in Toronto now but like you know spend all your time and do all your work here and then where's that ethic and where's that line right of having to that's, maintain no, a connection that's a to really a
0: community good, right? a really good question and what contribution yeah. to community means which community mm. uh i mean that that just opens up
1: yeah and so, we,
0: so many questions in and this discussion
1: we limit it to reserve spaces right and we think of it only as reserve spaces as opposed to thinking about it as like This is our traditional territory, right? Like, if you are a Haudenosaunee person actively working, contributing into the local Haudenosaunee community that's, you know, located within your traditional territory off-reserve, and you don't ever get a chance and you can't financially afford or it becomes unfeasible for you to travel, you know, several hours away to where your family's history historically was... Why are we limiting that? Why do we continue to impose that onto our people, right? As instead of thinking of, like, new and realistic and dynamic ways of how our community functions, right, that's
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. valuing
1: vibrancy of we are. I think
0: we're getting a little bit away from the membership code or membership yeah. law status discussion specifically, but this is really a really pr- pressing question, I think, and I, I think more and more, and I've always been sort of reserve-based in my thinking, and I'm, over the past few years understanding better um, I mean I've been an urban, urban Indian for years and years and years so I don't understand why it's taken me so long to understand the uh, um, uh, the urban indigenous community as a you know I don't, nation may not be the right word but as part of quote unquote the nation um, but there is also that slippery slope where we start, we start going down this very individualistic path and you know the community contributions that we make are less so less identifiable in Mm -hmm. urban contexts and, um, in some cases less identifiable. And, um, and I think that there's that emerging Mm -hmm. fragmentation and maybe if communities were better at welcoming or embracing or bringing back at least, um, you know, not in a physical way, but still some type of material way, then we wouldn't see that fragmentation and that move away from community towards individualism and, uh, I mean, this is a discussion about nationhood and what nationhood means, and you know, the community versus individual. And and again, I don't. I think we're getting a little bit away from what we were talking about when it comes to membership. Um. So so yeah, I I I mean, I don't disagree. I think that those are really important and heavy questions that we need to grapple with. And I think if communities were, you know, had more representation from. From urban folks, um, we might see something different, but instead we do see these membership codes that are very reserve based, that are very blood quantum based, that are very, you know, I mean, Six Nations, you got to go through a criminal background check to even be mm-hmm. a probationary band member. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, I mean, is that we're trying to protect our our, our citizens that are already here, or is that yeah. is that like recognizing the over incarceration of Indigenous peoples? <laughs> like, what is going on there?
1: It definitely so. Our community is very conservative, right? We are a very conservative leaning community. Um, I think Kodanishani people tend to be very conservative minded people, and um, I think that there's been a lot of questions in our community around. Um, traditional governance and the ability to banish people. Um, we've had people in our communities that are murderers who have murdered native women who have committed heinous crimes and we can't keep them from our community, right? No one wants them in our communities, And we can't keep them out, and that I think is one of the things that's very difficult, right? Because we think about justice in a very punitive way, right? Because of our oppression and colonization, and it's I think it's definitely based in that around the idea that people don't want uh, murderers in our community. And I can think of a specific example of someone who's basically been run out of our community because they cannot show their face, right? And that's a way that like social pressure is exerted. But I think that is that I think is specifically around that kind of thing, are people who commit violent crimes and mm-hmm. having them not um, be in the community.
0: Yeah, you know, it's not your, just your community. I mean, mine and I think others. There there is a significant conservative streak running mm-hmm. through our communities. You know, there was a, there was a campaign a couple of years ago on my reserve to have all banned employees uh, drug tested. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's kind of heavy. Mm-hmm. Don't let don't let white people know about this. Okay. <laughs>
1: well it's like our last episode too right we're talking about you know the ways in which how oppression works right and that people who are oppressed learn and adopt those practices and they exert it and reinforce it on each other and that's one of the ways that happens right our communities are incredibly conservative Mm -hmm. and um i think are are very likely to you know make decisions in a way that are they're risk averse yeah they're risk averse but it's essentially this uh, the idea of like um being very insular and protective of what yeah, we have left, yeah. right?
0: But the risk, of, the risk and the risk-adverse nature is the risk of actually, you know, being an authentic, genuine, indigenous community. Like, we're mm-hmm. risk-adverse to, 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 to trying to actually do that because there's been this uh, 150, 200 years of conditioning mm-hmm. to, to be afraid, to be afraid of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> now, there's also a termination clause in the six nations uh mm-hmm. code and and that's a really tricky one too i remember when we were having this discussion in my community it was like can you actually terminate somebody's citizenship you know like that they're born with that although in these process we're creating now we're bestowing citizenship on people um as mm-hmm. opposed to coming from any sort of inherent right but mm-hmm. um yeah we're now we're talking about about banning people about uh, re- not well, banning people is one part of it. I mean, with it, with these citizenship codes, you can deny people residency, um, but you can also terminate their citizenship mm-hmm. if they're not abiding by the 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 laws of the community. And in this case, it would be, I presume, the elected ban council.
1: Yeah, I think it would be the yeah it would be them, and they would. Um, Sorry, these dogs are super distracting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, there's like just little fluffy white dogs, dogs, like Bichon freaks. I don't know. They're something, but they're just freaking the fuck out. It's so funny. Um
0: (laughs) three little white dogs.
1: Three little dogs. Three little dogs about to scrap. Urban res dogs, just ready to go. I don't think
0: those are res dogs.
1: Um, you didn't, you Who's going
0: to kick out <laughs> the res dog What about the res dogs Where's the,
1: oh, We're keeping the res dogs yeah, right. The res dogs all have status
0: <laughs> One quarter <of> blood <laughs> quantum, leave Yeah. Res dogs, ah you could say.
1: Res dogs have 100% They're oh, the, I, the oh. most
0: mixed species On the reserve
1: <laughs> We got beagles mixed into our res dog mix Now on Six Nations And it's uh, quite a scene, quite a sight <laughs>
0: Uh, oh, yeah, But, you
1: know, I forget what we were talking about well, we're talking
0: about now. termination no, But, we're at right, the, uh, you know, we're, yeah. we're around the corner from it, uh, also.
1: So, it, But I will say, like, we should do a little nod to Undrip And say that that contravenes, like, the clots of Undrip, right? That says indigenous people have a right to their nationhood Well, is
0: that, you know, six nations saying, hey, we have a right to our own membership And they're creating a, a citizenship code, yeah. rather I mean, it's not status, but, um, yeah So I almost feel like we could have a second part to this conversation But, um yeah. we'll see what people have to say about this and maybe we can squeeze another mm-hmm. episode or partial episode mm-hmm. in before the yeah. uh before six Nations goes and has a conversation about the citizenship if law.
1: you have questions for us as always tweet us uh you know comment on instagram those kinds of things welcome any feedback and interaction from our listeners this has been uh, very interesting
0: do the thing and now uh gonna mm-hmm. eat some more turkey turkey
1: yeah thanks for the bird You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast, created by Courtney Skye and Haven King, sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I've been driving in my Indian car to the pound of the wheel